Let's pray. God, we thank you for your provision. We thank you for how you've blessed our church so much that we look out in our body and it doesn't seem like a really large number, but yet the impact of it and the transformation that you have been doing through us to our community, it's exponentially larger. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for choosing to use us and just humbled by it. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we go about doing your work here. In Jesus' name, amen. So we left off in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, where David told us in verse 19 that he felt like he was being pushed out of Israel to go and serve other gods. And you remember that David was in Ziph, and Ziph was a place in Israel. It's Israelite territory. And in our text today, he's actually going to be heading over to Gath in Philistia. So Philistine territory, enemy territory. And you look at David and you're like, what are you doing, dude? But, but you look at him and you're thinking like, I can't really blame him for leaving, right? I can't really kind of judge him for that. He's being hunted like an animal by Saul and and he's being mistreated by his own kinsmen, right? The the Ziphites are trying to turn him in and and Nabal is disrespecting him and and so all these different pressures and stuff. And as we've been studying through 1 Samuel, if you just kind of take a a glimpse at chapters 18 through 26, it you look at this and you and you might think, "Man, this would be a great action movie." Like this this is awesome. These awesome chase scenes and fight scenes and, and all this stuff and, and narrow escapes and all this kind of stuff. Like, this is a great story. But I want you to take a, a step back and, and stop for a second. Place yourself in, in his shoes for a moment and imagine how this would take a toil on you as a person. How, how all these stresses and these, and these runnings and being hunted like a dog and all this stuff. Because David was a real person. So, so place yourself in there, and, and let's just start by reading, starting verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Here we have David's plan to get away from all those different pressures, all those running aways, and all this stuff that he felt was just coming against him. And David feels that there's nothing else that he could do but to go over to enemy territory, to go over to Gath, to run over to Achish. And so you recall that he tried this before though, right? Remember back in chapter 21, he starts acting crazy, drooling all over his beard, graffitiing on the doors of Achish's house and stuff. And so it didn't work back then. So you might wonder, it didn't work back then, so why, why is he going to try it again now? Well, back then... David didn't have 600 guys with him. And back then, he didn't have these 600 guys that turned out to be pretty good fighters, that are pretty good mercenaries. So here Achish is thinking like, Israel's best military leader, and these 600 guys, these mercenaries working for him. This is a good deal now. This is something I can work with. So verse 5, Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, and I, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. 
Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day, and the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So David pulls a, a strategic maneuver here. He, he doesn't want Achish to know about everything that he's going to do uh, and, and plans to do, so he plays this kind of humble card, and he has to be moved out to the country because he doesn't want to be a burden on Achish. So Achish moves over to a town like Livermore or something like that. And so he, he gave to David Ziklag, which is 27 miles away from Gath. And so it's a good distance where he can do what he wants to do and not get found out. Verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshrites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked... Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremielites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. David goes back to Gath to give Achish a cut on all the raids that he performed. And and when Achish asked, who David raided, David would tell him that he was attacking his own people. That he was attacking the people of Judah and the the clans that were friendly to Judah. But in reality, he was attacking Judah's enemies. He was attacking Israel's enemies, the the Geshrites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites. And the plan was working. It was working really well that it allowed David to look really good on Israel's side because they would see like, oh yeah, he's still fighting for us. Even though he's there, he's still fighting for us. And it also worked on the the other side in, in thinking... For Achish to think like, oh, he's attacking our enemies. How awesome. And he's giving me spoil. This guy's just great. So David has the best of both worlds, right? He, he has his pie and he's eating it too. And so now David would not leave man nor woman alive. Why? And some think that David was, was carrying out what Saul was supposed to do in 1 Samuel chapter 15 against the Amalekites. You remember that? That Saul was given this order uh, back then to, to wipe out the Amalekites because of what they did in Exodus chapter 17 and what they did in Deuteronomy chapter 25. But I don't think it's because of that. And the main reason I don't think that is because there's these other people groups mentioned here, the Geshurites and the Gerzites. Like, they don't have anything to do with Exodus 17, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Right? There, there was no order against them to wipe them out. So this seems just to be going against the protocol of that time of raiding. The way that David was doing it was was much more severe than it was actually supposed to be practiced. And I think we, we have the reason why he didn't want to leave anyone alive in verse 11. David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath. It was to keep them silent so that news wouldn't get back to Gath, back to King Achish, that the truth wouldn't be led out to what David was actually doing, what he was really doing. And that's why he wanted a place of his own. He, he, he wanted to be far enough away so that he could get away with the things that he was wanting to do and what his men were getting away with. And it's 27 miles from Gath, so you know, they couldn't be found out. He doesn't want his cover to be blown, and he didn't want Achish to find out, so he, he, wipe, he just wipes everyone out. He wipes everyone out that he raids. And so these kind of successful raids, David brings back all these spoils from these people he raided, and he brings it back to Achish, and he, and he convinces Achish that he's with him, that he's for him, and that he's loyal to him. So the plot thickens. Verse 12. 
And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore he shall always be my servant. Kind of sense he's digging a little deeper here. Let's just do the first two verses of chapter 28. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. David has totally convinced Achish of his loyalty. And now David has been invited to be part of the Philistine army, actually a a personal bodyguard. And and David has totally gained Achish's trust here. And and what once seemed to be the best of both worlds doesn't seem like such a great plan anymore, does it? What we we see is David getting himself in this this pickle between the Philistines and, and the Israelites. That, that he, by gaining the trust of Achish, the king of Gath, it got him invited to, to march into battle against his own people, who he was supposed to be king over. Now, if David goes along with this, this is the end of his reign as king, right? It's not possible, because the Israelites aren't going to want this king over them who fights against them and, and, is, and is fighting for their enemies. It's just not a, a good way to run a political campaign, right? You just you don't do that. And, and people don't want their future king to be someone who, who fought against them on the battlefield and killed their own people. Now, something really interesting about this chapter and these couple of verses in 28. Did you notice that, that God is never mentioned in this section of Scripture? It, it's as if this text is a godless text. And, and God is not mentioned in this narrative at all. We're, we're told nothing about what God is doing here or, or what he thinks of David's actions. And we're not told of God's views here, which makes it really difficult to know what God is up to and how God sees things. Right? So, so how do we go about this text? Just throw it out. No. So here we have this text that, that is descriptive. This text is telling us some things, but but we're not given what God thinks or what even the author thinks. The author doesn't tell us he's pro-David and and that everything David did he approves of. It tells us what happened. right? To know how God looks upon this whole thing, we, we don't have that. Or what his take is on this, we don't have that. It just tells us about it. So what do we do with this? Well, this actually isn't unusual. Just because we're silent about something, it doesn't mean that we're for it or, or against it, right? Just because we report something doesn't mean that we're for it or against it. For example, you're a witness to vandalism, and the police officer asks you what happened, and, and just because you tell him what you saw doesn't mean that you're in favor of vandalism or that you are against vandalism. You're just telling him what you saw. You're just giving an account of what happened, and sometimes the Bible just tells us what happened. But it doesn't commit itself for being for something or against something, which makes it difficult to interpret at times. So, what is God doing here, even though he's not mentioned in this section of text? Is David in the right? Or is David in the wrong? Or is it that those aren't even the right questions to ask? Well, we have to go to some hints that we have. And one of those hints is in chapter 27, verse 1, where we have the word perish. 
Chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David is talking to himself here, and he uses the word perish. Now you look back at chapter 26, where David and Abishai were standing over Saul, and and Abishai wanted to kill Saul. And you look at verse 10. And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. Now it's interesting, because in chapter 27, verse 1, David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day, by the hand of Saul, when right before, in chapter 26, the episodes before, he spoke about Saul perishing. And it seems like David's faith is kind of waning here. From chapter 26 to chapter 27, and he looks to Philistia for some relief. And it seems that the faith that we saw in chapter 26 is different from what we're getting here in chapter 27. See, back in chapter 26, we were shown how Saul was defenseless as God was, was no longer protecting him. That he allowed David to go through all those men in the middle of the camp, stand over him, take his spear and take his water bottle. And which would be encouraging, right? In chapter 26, you would be like, man, David, he's totally behind you. That would be really encouraging to do that and get away with it and, and shout back and say like, hey, why aren't you protecting your king? But here in 27, it's not that encouraging. It actually seems like David's faith here is going against all those protections of God that David had experienced before. Well, you go back to chapter 18. And we see how David was able to escape from Saul's spear two times. And moving on through that chapter, we saw how God protected David in battle against the Philistines. You remember Saul asked for those hundred foreskins, and if David did that, he could marry his daughter. You remember that? So God protects him through that battle. And, and then Jonathan in, intervenes on David's behalf to intervene with his dad to say, like, hey, don't kill him. And then David escaped from a spear again in chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. And then Saul's daughter in chapter 19, verses 11 through 17, helped him escape out that window. And there was the protection from God in Ramah. When you get to that latter part of chapter 19, when he runs to Ramah to kind of like get away and ask Samuel, like, what's going on? And then Jonathan sends David away in chapter 20 for his protection. And then he escaped from Gath by acting crazy in chapter 21. And then David received instruction from the prophet Gad and Abiathar, the priests, in chapter 22 and 23. And we saw that Saul didn't have that stuff. It was a provision of protection for David. Saul didn't have that. And then in chapter 23, verse 13... By God, he escaped from Keilah when Saul was closing in on him, but then the Philistines attacked, so he had to go back, and and he escaped from Saul in Maon when the Philistines attacked, and and so Saul had to redirect the army there. And then we get to En Gedi in chapter 24, where it seems like the tables have turned, and it's in David's favor. Saul's right there in in the front of the cave because he went in to relieve himself there and to take a nap, leaving him totally vulnerable, but David restrained himself. And then we get to this deep sleep in Hakila in chapter 26, when God put a deep sleep on the entire army, when he could go into the middle of it, take the spear, take the water bottle, and, and leave. So all in all, we have 13 episodes of God's protection on David. Pretty good, isn't it? That's a pretty good track record. Yet still, after all those episodes of protection, 13 of them, here in chapter 27, verse 1, we have David saying in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. 
But God's record's pretty good, isn't it? Thirteen times. And before we start pointing fingers at David and saying like, man, how can he have such a little faith, that guy? Thirteen times God did that? And how could he possibly believe that he would perish by the hand of Saul? Ask yourselves if you've ever been guilty of doubting God when he's come through for you time after time after time. Where you have a ton of evidence, all these episodes in your life of how God has come through for you in the past. But how easily we forget in the present the faithfulness of God. And how soon we forget all the times God delivered us in our life. But in our present time we have doubt. And how we get so blind to how God delivered us in the past. And we forget like David did here in in verse 1. We forget that all those 13 times before. And there are times that we just don't live consistently with the evidence that we have. Don't we? Haven't we all confronted this in our Christian life? It's happened, right? And if you say no, you're lying. Because we face our situations differently where, where we may do fine through some of them, but change some of the details within those circumstances and we act differently. We change. And where one thing doesn't bother you at all and it seems like a really, really small thing later on that it bugs the heck out of you. It's funny. And so, so what's the attitude of chapter 27 since God isn't directly referenced here? Well, it's sympathetic, it's understanding, yet it's critical of David. So some of you might disagree, which, which is fine, you're allowed to do that, but I get paid to study and teach this, so... Here, here, it's my job. So this is what I think. That this chapter is sympathetic yet critical of David. And I, and I think David is in the wrong here. I think David is doing wrong. And the scriptures show an understanding of David. And, and it has been laid out how much duress David is under, how much stress he's under. And we went over these 13 episodes of deliverance. But within each one of those episodes, there's a, a lot of stress. There's a lot of duress that we sometimes overlook because we focus more on the deliverance. We focus on the after, not what he's going through at the moment. We, we forget that those episodes are extremely stressful. He's under a lot of duress. So I don't think the scriptures are beating him up, but in chapter 27, verses 9 and 11, I think the scriptures are being critical of David. Because when raids happened, life wasn't usually taken. right? Or at least that wasn't the intent. Raids were common back then. And and of course, raiders weren't nice people that committed these raids. And and some people might have been killed. But the intent wasn't to completely wipe out entire people groups during a raid. That wasn't the intent of it. A raid's purpose was to collect spoil, was to steal. Which may include taking people to be your slaves. But it wasn't to kill them. It wasn't to eliminate a people group. It was to collect plunder. It was to get material goods. It was to maybe even enslave some folks. But it wasn't necessarily to kill them. But David did. He didn't spare anyone. He didn't spare anyone's life because he didn't want Achish to find out what he was really doing. So to cover up what he's doing, he wiped out everyone he raided. And it wasn't something that God told him to do. He did it so that he could hide what he was really doing from Achish. He didn't keep anyone alive because he didn't want anyone communicating to Achish about what David was really doing. 
So David slaughtered these people. And so what David did was reprehensible. It was beyond the codes and the limits of raiding. Back in that time, it just wasn't how raiding was done back then. And even though raids in themselves were unethical and immoral, they did have limits to them. The the pagans didn't wipe out people. And we can understand why David did, right? He wanted to protect himself. He wanted to protect the 600 men and their households from what Achish He didn't want to turn against his own people. So you kind of get an understanding of why David did what he did. But it seems that there's still this criticism here because it's just pointing out this is what he did. And so there's this tension. There's this tension here. And it seems that we're presented with this understanding of what David did while we're also presented with this criticism of what he did. How is this of any value to us? Well... The point is that some of the pressures of our life, some of the things that cause us duress in our life, it might choke out our faith, just like it did for David. Where once our faith was strong, it was really strong that even in our text today, it doesn't have God directly in it, or it doesn't mention God's viewpoints directly, but it still provides us with these godly truths and these godly directions. And so once where our faith was strong, those truths don't change. Those truths are still the truth. But sometimes we wane under the duress. We wane under the stresses, even though our faith was once strong. And one of the godly truths and the godly directions we get from this text is to lean on our true security. To lean on our true security. To depend on what is truly secure. You look at verses 1-3 through again. And verse 1 specifically where it reads, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. There is nothing better for me? And so here we have one of faith's moments of weakness. Right? We, we all have moments of weakness in our faith. And here it is in verse 1 for David. We already went through all those episodes, those 13 episodes of God's deliverances to show that God was faithful to His promise. Yet David still told himself, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. And there is nothing better for me? And so David's telling himself this stuff. He said this to his heart in a time of weakness in his faith. So he looked to Philistia. He looked to the enemy for security rather than looking to God. So how do we lean on our true security? How do we lean on them? Well, I think we observe what David did here and, and we adjust our plans. All right, so what did David do here in verse 1? David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. So was David speaking the truth about God to his heart? No. So one of the things we can do to lean on our true security is to speak the truth about God to our heart. And it's not that David didn't think. David was a deep thinker. You just read the Psalms. He didn't just think what was true. That's where he kind of fell. He didn't speak to himself what was true. He told himself that he would perish by the hand of Saul when when 13 times before God delivered him. And you see how David wasn't telling himself the truth about God. God, our true security. And how often do we do that to ourselves? Telling ourselves what isn't true about God. 
telling our heart what isn't of God. And it's important that we speak the truth of God to ourselves, to our heart. And, and some of you may be wondering about this whole talking to yourself thing. Like, isn't that some like self-help tool that Christians don't do that, do we? We don't do that. Now, who are you fooling? Come on. Right? You talk to yourself already. Right now you're talking to yourself. You're saying, like, do I really talk to myself? You're talking to yourself. <laughs> we all do, right? Who doesn't do that? Raise your hand. If you don't talk to yourself, raise your hand. Oh, right there? Liar. <laughs> because if you raise your hand, you would have been telling yourself, I don't. I don't. Right? You talk to yourself. So before you raise your hand, you already talk to yourself. We all talk to ourselves. So some of us might do it audibly, which I think some of you need to tone down. Because I've caught some of you in front of the mirror. And um, it, I'm not going to embarrass you for a little money. But you know who you are. Hi, beautiful. Right? Is it? Haven't seen you in the last five seconds. Right? And you're looking good today. You're gorgeous. And, it's a, and some of you are delusional. But, but I'm glad you have a good self-image. But we all talk to ourselves. We all talk to ourselves, even Christians. And it's really important what we say to ourselves. Because this propaganda that we fill our mind and soul with, it strongly influences our actions. David said he was going to be swept away. He was going to perish by Saul. And, and that strongly influenced his action to seek refuge in Philistia, in enemy territory. And speaking to ourselves, to our minds, to our souls, it's not something that's new. It actually happens in the Bible. You look at Luke chapter 12. Jesus is telling the story about a, a rich guy who has this abundance of crops and he wanted to tear down his old barns to build new ones so he can store this abundance. But what does the rich man say in verse 19? And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. See, the dude was talking to himself. Right? And what do we say to ourselves? It strongly influences our actions. It's important to speak to ourselves, to speak to our souls the truth about God, the true security that we have in God. David knew that. You look at Psalms chapter 62, verse 5. For God alone, O my soul. See, David's talking to himself. Wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. Psalms chapter 116, verse 7. Return, O my soul. David's talking to himself. To your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. So what is David saying to his own soul in those two psalms? That God is his only hope. For God alone, O my soul. His only help is found in God. Return, O my soul, to your rest. To God, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. We need to speak truth to ourselves about true security. And you talk about the truths of God to each other, don't you? you? You share the truths of God with one another. Why not do it to yourself? Why not share that to yourself? See, you lean on your true security and you stop telling yourself the false things of God. You are not going to perish by your souls in your life. And you tell the others about the true security of God also. And another truth of God is that we need to learn the art of wisdom. We need to learn the art of wisdom. And in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, it's written, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way 
to death. See, there are things that seem right to us, but they lead us down the wrong path. And back to David, it's not that David didn't think. He did. He thought a lot, right? We just read those two Psalms. David was a deep thinker. So no doubt he thought a lot about going to Philistia before he actually went. He thought a lot about what he was going to do before he went there. He was a military strategist. This guy was a thinker. He didn't just do it on impulse. And one of the things that drove him there was just this constant running. He's tired. There were no breaks for him. It was just this continual stress. Saul's spies are out looking for him. People are turning him in like the Ziphites. And Nabal is just criticizing him and being disrespectful and and just doesn't care about anything that he's helped him do. And all this stuff is happening in what may seem exciting to read or, or watch in a movie. It's really tiring in real life. It's real stressful in real life. And David didn't just have to worry about himself. And he also didn't just have to worry about 600 other men. He had their households with them. Their wives, their kids, their parents. He had to look out for all of them to find refuge in the caves of Judah for this mass of people. He had to find provisions for all those people in a land that was hostile towards them. Not from just people, but the land itself. Try finding fresh water in a desert for that many people. Try finding food in a desert for that many people. So do you get a better sense of the weight that David was experiencing during that time? And every day he had to worry about survival for them. Not just for himself, but but hundreds, if not thousands of others that were with him. And with all that pressure and all that stress... You can't help but want some relief and fast. You want that relief. And you imagine how tired David must have felt. And, and how going to Philistia, that man, that looks so good. That would give me some relief from Saul. That would take care of these people. We could have provisions. We can start storing things. We could, we could start getting ourselves together. And you look at the situation and how it turned out in chapter 27. It, it seemed right. It seemed like David's plan was working, that David's calculations were right on. Like, you know, his plan was kind of like unfolding just brilliantly. And how do we know his plan worked? Because in verse 4, And when it was told Saul that David had fled the Gath, he no longer sought him. His plan worked. He got Saul off of his tail. He found a place for all those thousands of people. It worked. Saul's not after us anymore. Not only is he not after David and his crew anymore, but Achish gave him a city. Gave him a city to live in. And man, this plan is awesome. This is working. Everything is working. Saul Saul is off our back. We, We got our own place. And it didn't stop there. There was more to the plan that was working. He goes out and he raids against Israel's enemies. He takes him out and he collects all those spoils for his people and the people he's providing for. He gives some to Achish. So Achish, he gains some more trust with him and they think they're buddies and stuff. Man, this plan is working. This plan is is beyond work. This plan is great. You talk about a perfect plan. Everything is working out. Until Achish trusted David so much that he invites him to partake in a battle against Israel. Oops. Oops worked out too well 
It wasn't then that David realized, I'm putting my kingship in jeopardy. And what Saul was trying to do, God was protecting me from, but look what I did. Look what I created for myself. I thought all this stuff was right, but it's a mess. And so he put his reign in danger because no Israelite is going to want to follow him as a king if he fights against them. If he joins another army, an enemy's army, they're going to view him as a traitor, not as their king. But up until that point, everything was looking great, wasn't it? Man, this is a beautiful plan, David. Awesome. Everything looked great. All the signs were pointing that everything was going fine. Everything was right. It looked like the plan was coming together perfectly. Back to that proverb, there are ways that seem right to men, but they're not. They lead to death. There's an appearance of what looks right, but where is it leading? There's this twist here, right? And how how we need to learn the art of wisdom. And from David's experience, we learn that what David saw as his most urgent, his most desperate, difficult problem was actually not his most urgent, most difficult, desperate problem. And these are problems that weren't the worst for him because God protected him. God got him out of that stuff. There are problems that are worse. It's worse to be faced with joining the Philistines in battle against Israel than it is to face Saul, but we don't always see things that clearly, do we? See, the will of God for us involves more than just escaping from our Saul. Things can be worse for you. But sometimes in our situations, if we're like David, where just this one thing just consumes us, it it becomes huge, it's all-encompassing, it's everything. And we think, if I can only get away from my Saul, if I can only get away from this, but the will of God involves more than just escaping from your Saul. The will of God isn't all about us getting some relief in our life. Sometimes it's hard to see that when we're in the middle of Saul breathing down our neck. And when we seek relief from our Saul's and it looks like things are working. Oh, wow, this is working. I, I, this is working. I, I, I am getting away. I, I'm, I'm getting a place. I'm getting away from this guy. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves about that proverb. That things that may look right, but it's not. Perhaps whatever problem we're going through or will go through, that seems like there are no solutions to them, that they're difficult, that they're painful. We need to remind ourselves that our problems can be worse. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves that things can be worse. How do we learn the art of wisdom? How do we learn this balance here? Because I think there's this balance of trusting that David had to struggle with this balance, I think. Am I trusting God by staying in Israel where I'm exposed to Saul and all these people are exposed to Saul or fleeing Israel? Knowing if if we are trusting God or if we are tempting God. I'm sure he had to weigh that. Because after all, you know, David's thinking like, man, yeah, 13 times he's delivered me and, and but maybe God is telling me to get the heck out of here and to stop tempting him. Like, Maybe God's saying like, come on, 13 times already? You want me to go 14? So how do you know if it's that or not? Or maybe fleeing was what God wanted David to do. But how do we know? 
How do we know these things? Is, is leaving Israel and going to Philistia a lack of courage? Or is it a lack of faith? Or is it a lack of nerve if you don't stay? How do we know? How do we, how do we know that an action we take is an expression of our trust in God? Or if it's a denial of our trust in God? How do we know? Have any of you had to make such a judgment in your life? How do I know? And sometimes it's difficult. We have to learn the art of wisdom. And some of it's learned by experience, and there really isn't an easy way to know everything that we have to know. It's not easy. There's no like instant answer here, this is how you do it. But we do have guiding principles in the Bible, and one of them is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Let's be honest. Doesn't this tick some of you off? I know that this has been told to me, this verse, when I've been going through a tough time, and I'm like, shut up! God! Trust in the Lord with all my heart? What are you talking about? Jeez! Pastor, is that all you have to say to me? Trust in the Lord with all your heart? That's it? No, that's not all I'm saying to you. Because oftentimes we forget that second part of verse 5. Sometimes all we focus on is trust in the Lord with all your heart and we forget the and. What does it say there? And do not lean on your own understanding. The proverb is telling us that we have a part in this. We have some ownership in this. And that we are to think. We're to use our heads. We're not just to be a blob of faith. Trust in God. We are to use our understanding. But we're not to lean on our understanding. That's how we're to balance it. We are to lean on the Lord. And use our understanding. We aren't to lean on our understanding and use the Lord. That's the principle. And that's part of how we learn the art of wisdom. Now, one last godly truth I want to share this morning. There are many, but just one from studying this text is that we have to get a grip on grace. Looking back to verses 8 through 11, we saw those raids that David did. The raiding itself, you know, that's one thing. But what about the merciless way that he butchered all those men and all those women? And what about the reasoning behind the massacre? Because he didn't want to be found out, that's why you did it? Seems like a pretty sorry reason. That's why you killed everyone you raided? Because you just didn't want to be found out? You didn't want the truth to be known? To cover yourself from Achish so that you could keep raiding Israel's enemies? It just seems wrong, doesn't it? It seems so ruthless. It seems so calculating. So what are we to do with someone like this who would stoop so low as to butcher people who were no match for him and his men? And I think some of you would read this and you can start to get angry at David. Right? Where, where we would feel betrayed by David because David was a hero of my faith. You know, I, I didn't realize that I didn't ever see it this way that he killed all those people. Yeah, I've heard of the Bathsheba thing and, and how he, he killed Uriah and stuff, but I, I, I didn't see this. 
And so I used to be pro-David. We saw a guy being chased by Saul, right? How, how God delivered him again and again from all these trials. And I just was starting to begin to cheer for him. And then in chapter 27, he pulls this. He butchers people. Or maybe there are some of us here who are angry at the Bible. And it's disturbing to us that the Bible is so brutally honest and doesn't hide the truth like David was trying to do. That even the greatest heroes of the faith, the Bible is brutally honest about their sin, about their downfall. It's not a book to portray this nice thing about people of faith. Or maybe there are some who are angry with God. People who can understand how God judged Saul for what he did, but what's up with God choosing to protect, sustain, and support David when he does horrible things like this? God, how can you allow that to happen? God, how do you allow people like this to go on doing what they do? But before we get any more angry, let's take a step back. And before we start looking at people with a pointing finger, let's take a look at ourselves for a moment. That maybe the problem is with us. And you're thinking, us? I'm not in that story. I didn't kill anybody there. How can I be the problem? Well, as a reader of the Bible, as a student of the Bible, as a disciple of Jesus, we need to take a look at ourselves when we get caught up in this judging of human characters in the Bible. Whether that judgment is favorable or unfavorable, when we start developing these biases towards certain characters and we start giving them this celebrity status and worshiping them as heroes until we find something out about them that really upsets us, whether that's in the Bible or real life, do we throw out God's kingdom because the subjects of God's kingdom, including his chosen servants like David, because we're all sinners? Do we throw all that out? And I think our text is pointing us to getting a grip on grace. See, David is made out of the same stuff that every other servant of God is made of. We are all sinners. And I hope that we'll never be surprised at what professing believers or genuine believers will do. And the depths, the ugly depths, to which they may fall in their sins and their practices. You know, I, I've rubbed a lot of shoulders with a lot of Christians, and I haven't met one that wasn't a sinner. They all are. And, and I think I've reached a point in my life where I will not be surprised at anything a Christian will tell me or do. Nothing. You can't tell me anything that will surprise me. I'm not surprised at the depths to which a Christian will fall. I do get disappointed. I get disappointed, but I'm never surprised at anything. I can tell you some crazy stuff too. And I can't say that I've heard it all. I haven't. But in the last nine years as a pastor, I've heard a lot. A lot. And some of this stuff, you're like, whoa, unbelievable. And, and there isn't anything, something, someone can tell me that's going to surprise me anymore. Go ahead, try. Go ahead. Confess. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, I... I might be disappointed though. But I won't be surprised because you're made up of the same stuff that I'm made up of. We're no different. I know what goes through my head. 
I'm as sick as you guys are. And, 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 and so we're made up of the same stuff that David's made up of. And, and we need to get a grip on grace rather than getting upset at people who have fallen from grace. And yes, things that happen, sometimes they're tragic, like David butchering people. But we need to take a step back and recognize that David and other Christians who have disappointed you Other Christian leaders, Christian ministers, people that you kind of looked up to, that have disappointed you, who were God's servants, not because they were so good and and that they're full of virtue. That's not why they were God's servant. God used them in spite of who they are. God uses us in spite of who we are. We need to get a grip on grace. See, God's servants, they're not infallible. We're not sin-free. We are sinful. We are sinners. And God's servants are made up of the same stuff that the worst people you can think of in all history are made of. See, God has nothing clean to work with. There are no clean materials for God to work with. Do you understand that? We as Christians, we have this analogy, right, of the potter and the clay, where God is the potter and we are the clay. But something I think we need to be aware of is that the stuff that the potter is working with, it's all messed up clay. None of it's good. It's all messed up clay. It's sinful clay. That's the clay we're talking about here. It's messed up stuff. So rather than going to the potter and saying, what are you doing? Why don't you get rid of this messed up clay and work with something that's that's more pure and not so messed up. It would be a lot easier to work with. Why, why do you work with such terrible material? You are a bad potter. Rather, we ought to step back in amazement and we marvel at the patience of the potter to create such a beautiful thing out of messed up material. The potter doesn't just throw out this messed up clay, that he actually chooses to work with this stuff and create something beautiful. That the potter actually insists on using this messed up stuff. That potter's amazing. That potter is a master potter. And if you ever catch yourself judging it, just look into your own sinful heart and your own sinful life. And I've got news for you. You've got plenty to deal with without dealing with someone else's. You got a ton. I don't even know some of you. I I can tell you already have a ton just looking at you. God, God uses messed up people in His kingdom, including you, including me. He uses us. And the servants that God uses aren't used because they're the best material to work with. Actually, you're the stinkiest material to work with. It's all about the potter and how awesome he is in crafting something. You as a material, me, like, terrible. I have glass in me and nails and all this other stuff that, that isn't easy to work with. And we're all made of this same sinful stuff. Even when we have Jesus in our life, we still have the same sinful stuff. And we need to get a grip on grace. And we need to adore the potter and not look at the material. It's the potter. And if we get caught up in, in human worthiness, if we're worthy enough, if the clay is worthy enough, you know, you just won't ever understand the Bible fully. You'll never tremble before a holy God. You'll never delight in the grace and the love of God. You, you won't get it. 
In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there's a hymn that was written with that verse in mind. It says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. You don't have to get everything right to come to God because you never will. You are always that mess of clay. The thing is, is do you want to be worked on by the potter? It's not about making yourself better clay. It's about you submitting yourself to the potter. And Jesus came for all of that clay. He works with all of it. And God in His grace, He chooses to use that stuff. He chooses to use messed up material in service to Him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You give us the true security in our fears. Lord, I pray that You would give us the art of wisdom during our problems and not lean on our own understanding, but to lean on You and to use our understanding. Lord, I pray for grace in the face of judgment, in the face of our own sins. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who don't know Jesus, you already know you're messed up clay. I don't have to tell you that. And this message wasn't meant to beat you up and to reinforce that you are. It was just to kind of redirect you that you have a potter that is willing to work with whatever you have in your life and make it something beautiful to use you in God's kingdom. And you can submit yourself to that. You can submit yourself to a God where in your fears you have a true security in Him. Where in your lack of wisdom, when you think things are right, but it's actually leading to death, that you have someone who's going to grant you that wisdom, that no matter how far you've fallen, that there's grace for you. And if you're that person, I want to pray with you, and I want you to pray with me. And afterwards, come talk to me. You can email me. You can call me. You can come up for prayer. However you want to do it. I don't want to put you on the spot. Because it happens weeks later, days later, sometimes months later that someone will inquire and say like, yeah, actually, I want to make this decision and start this journey. So let's pray together. Lord, I want to believe in you. And I want to believe all this stuff is real. And I think that I do. But I'm just not sure. And God, I I would love for you to be the potter in my life. I want to lean on you for understanding. I want your wisdom in my life and not me continuing to go down these things that seem right, but I see where I ended up. And so Jesus, I pray that you would come into my life and that we can start this relationship. And I pray for courage that we would move forward together that I would stay true and just keep praying to you and seeking you and and the truth will come out. The truth that I choose to speak to myself rather than the false things I speak to myself. In Jesus' name, amen.